0: Welcome back along to the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella. I know that it's been a while since our last episode, so I'm very glad that you found your way back to our warm embrace. In this episode, we will continue the series responding to the Thinking Atheist radio show, where he and his guests from the Atheist Experience, Matthew Dillahunty and Tracy Harris, as well as a couple of other guests, are trying to engage in counter-apologetics. <music> So far, we've seen that they are really doing a pretty bad job of it. If you've listened to the past three episodes, you know that it's kind of becoming a comedy of errors so far. But we'll get to that shortly. I've gotten some feedback that I'm being a little too harsh on them thus far. Well, I never have the intention of being harsh, but I do have the intention of being brutally honest and subjecting their assertions to the same kind of scrutiny that they would subject to mine. Well, that's not quite fair to me, in fact, I try to scrutinize their assertions as objectively and fairly as possible, and with the least amount of straw men or ad hominem or subjective psychologizing as possible, whereas they seem perfectly fine with those methods. So I should say that I try to subject them to a more fair kind of scrutiny than they would of mine. But I digress. I've also been crit- criticized for calling Matthew Dillahunty, "Matty D. To be honest, I didn't mean it as a pejorative, but rather as an informal statement of friendship like I would with any of my friends, even though I don't know Matt. If Matt and I were friends in real life and we were having these discussions, I would, in jest, say things like, Maddie, come on, Matty." So while I didn't mean them as harsh, I do know that my somewhat sarcastic nature and very dry sense of humor that not a lot of people get doesn't always land very well uh, through audio. So, if you were one of those people who took it as an intentional insult, or Matt, if you're listening, I do apologize for how that came out. That's not actually how I meant it. So, I take the criticism. I do apologize for how that came about. Now, I was also criticized for calling Seth, the thinking atheist, The, quote-unquote, unthinking atheist. This, I will admit, was a little harsh, but I think quite apt. If my criticisms of their comments are valid and their, quote-unquote, counter-apologetics really was as rational, uneducated, unresearched, uh, and biased, and so on as as I showed, then can I really be faulted for saying that very little, little critical thought and reflection actually went into the production of that show. Now, I would also like to add before we get started uh, with the content of this episode that I never intentionally pull comments out of context and always attempt as much as I can to deal honestly and fairly and accurately with the intent of the speaker, which is why in the last several episodes, I gave you the audio of their statements in their entirety. I didn't cut anything out. However, I know that I'm not perfect. If you think that I've misrepresented them, I first ask that you please know where you think that I did. It wasn't intentional. And second, let me know what you think I have been mistaken about so I can evaluate it, respond to it. And if a mistake has been in fact made, I will make sure to publicly include it in my next episode, much like I did at the start of the second show after being told that I had misattributed sayings uh, that, that Aaron Ross said to Matthew Dillahunty. Okay, with that said, in the last episode, we responded to their really abysmally, shockingly, astonishingly, horrifyingly poor handling of Pascal's wager, and we saw that to a large degree they seemed either unwilling, or unable, or both, to deal with the most robust and intellectually defensible positions, and rather went off on tangents, the genetic fallacies, engaged in strawmen and caricatures, or just went down the path of downright subjective psychologizing. I really wish that I could say that from here on out, They got it all out of their system and started to engage more reasonably with the beliefs and arguments that are actually put forth by Christian scholars and theologians. But sadly, my honesty and integrity just don't allow me to lie to you all. It actually gets much, 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 much worse from this point on. Now there is a brief glimmer of light when Matt takes his fellow skeptics to task for a shallow view of who has the burden of proof and when. But besides that fleeting moment, there just isn't much content really to engage with. It's just a kind of biased, bigoted, look how fear-mongering those stupid Christians are. Most of what follows from where we left off last time is just digression after digression, basically equating religious belief, uh, and specifically Christian religious belief, with a kind of fear-mongering mental abuse and the devious indoctrination of the feeble-minded. Because they almost never actually get back to discussing anything remotely resembling arguments put forth by Christian scholars, I'm not going to subject you to the entire rest of the episode, but rather, I'm going to skip to their second episode where they start taking callers and answering emails. Joining me on this episode is a man who is no stranger to the Freed Thinker podcast, my dear friend, Nicholas Persese. Now, before we launch into the show, I wanted to remind you again of the new project that I am involved with, with Nicholas and our good friend Brandon Christian. Where we have fine-tuned our podcasting prowess and launched a new project under the less opaque title Fight Club.
1: We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose, no place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression
0: is our lives. Target acquired. Yes, that's P H. Fight Club, and it can be found in the iTunes podcast store or app. We're actually in the process of recording a backlog of content and setting up a structure for a new website, so while it may be sparse now, subscribe to it at the ground floor and you will soon see an explosion of content. This new project is geared to all of you philosophiles out there, ranging from the novice to the well-educated, and will be a kind of variety show. Where sometimes it will be all three of us discussing philosophy, or two of us uh, discussing religion and biblical criticism, or one of us interviewing a guest on a topic of interest, and so on. Maybe one day we'll even have Matthew Dillahunty or the Thinking Atheists on themselves and engage with these episodes. Who knows? The cloud is the limit. The World Wide Web is our oyster <laughs> So subscribe to iTunes, uh, to Fight Club, and start checking out the Facebook group for some good articles and discussions. Okay, now with that shamelessly self-promoting little plug out of the way, let's get on while the getting on is good. Or something like that. All right, so on today's show, we're going to continue talking through our series, uh, responding to an episode or two episodes on the Thinking Atheist radio show uh, with his guests from the Atheist Experience on counter-apologetics. This will be the last installment of the series, and here we're going to be dealing with part two, so their second episode. And with me today is my good friend and uh, no, no stranger to the show, N.J. Bruzzese. How are you, Nicholas?
1: Good, thank you for having me. How are you?
0: I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I know we've been trying to get together to do this show for a while now, so we've, we've had some time to listen through this this episode uh, maybe more than once. I've listened to it a couple times, uh, painfully, <laughs> but, but made it through. Uh, why don't you tell me just a little bit about what interested you about um, this, this series in particular? Uh,
1: this, uh, the counter-apologetics part, uh, that they did. Uh, look, I guess that for the most part it was, uh, it was, it was actually something similar to what I held before I began to get into philosophy, and uh, before I began to examine my own worldview, and before I began to try to ground uh, the naturalism that I held in you know proper rationale in in sound rationale. I used to argue a little bit like. I found them arguing today, and and funnily enough, it was only a, a couple of weeks ago. I was just checking out one of the old episodes that I had recorded that that um, for my old podcast that aren't e- they're not even available online anymore. And there were a couple of things that uh, yeah, that uh, were very similar between the two, and I just wondered whether or not uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned. How much I'd progressed since then
0: <laughs> yeah i I remember those days that's when yeah. that's when you and i met <laughs> yep <laughs> way way back way back then um well, I know you were you had some points that you wanted to get out from from the get go so why don't we just dive right in um and just uh what was one of the first one of the first points that stood out to you
1: uh perhaps the first- well the i mean the first thing that they begin speaking about is uh um the ontological argument. I think it was a question from an emailer. Um, now you might be able to, to to articulate the ontological argument or explain it much uh, more uh, in depth than probably what I could do if I'm, if, especially if I'm just coming at this as a newbie to to philosophy, as a recent uh, student of philosophy, I guess. Um, but that was. Perhaps I, I, that was perhaps the I think the first thing that they spoke about. So um, Matt Dillahunty um, already admits that he's not sure of the form of the argument that the email was was talking about, and so he goes on to give Anselm's formulation of the ontological argument for God. And I guess that um, you know I I guess the first thing that's disappointing is that if they had been emailed in, presumably it wasn't a live email. Yeah, um, they and had that, some
0: time to to look yeah. up. The the emailer was asking about Gödel's version of the ontological argument, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <And laughs> yeah so you think they'd have time to look it up?
1: They could have, you know, looked it up, right? But anyway, um, I I, pr- I get, you know, and I said to you from the get go, right? If you remember, I bet he's just going to go on to refute Amselm's formulation. Um, and it turns out that he mostly did, but um, I think what's important and probably the mo- one of the more recent developments on Gödel's formulation is that um, the proof is valid, right? So yep. uh, some scientists out of, do you remember where? I'll, I'll, I'll have to go back.
0: I don't there. remember the I don't remember the university, but they they ran it through the the basically logic machine. <laughs> yeah, for, for yeah. lack of so, a better word.
1: Yeah, so they 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 ran it. They gave they set it through a set of mathematical hurdles, and it comes out that in simple language that that his basic assumptions are valid, and from these basic assumptions, the conclusion necessarily follows. And so that I think is what we call a valid argument, right? Yep. And soundness would mean
0: soundness is that it's valid with true premises
1: right okay so so that yeah that the the argument is valid then means because it's actually i I don't know if you want to to detail it here but it's actually a, a pretty and i don't mean this pejoratively but it's convoluted it's it's quite complex in terms of of how deep down the the syllogism goes right right um and so you know without trying to unnecessarily complicate things here that 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 the fact that now we can say you know mathematically that it is valid and that the conclusion does necessarily follow then means that it's now up to theists to argue for the premises that that the premises are at least more plausibly true than their negation um and it would have been nice to hear them try to deal with that but i think one of the 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 themes that we'll see as we go through what they say in this, is that it's not very in-depth in fact it's it more resembles a group of friends sitting around just discussing haphazardly things like morality and history and you know one of the the, the next point is actually an email from anna maria I, I think that was the next thing and and uh jt one of the co-hosts there he, he's, I quote him as saying that morality is a secular construct, and he says that we don't need religion to be moral. And, and I think that you and I would both agree with him, right? We don't need religion to be moral. And I guess that I'm an, in, in a good position right now, and this is one of the, the errors that I used to make when I first began exploring philosophy, and he seems to think what I thought, that this is what christian philosophers were arguing is that without religion you couldn't be moral and and the problem is is that this conflates how we know what is right and wrong with moral facts or or examples of things that are objectively right or wrong yeah yeah And, and this would be the difference that you know I think kick things off for me uh, all those years ago was the difference between moral epistemology and moral ontology. And uh, academics who are serious about theism and the atheism debate, they, they simply don't argue or think that you need religion to be moral. I'm sure some people might argue that, but in this case then, and again, an, another theme that you'll see that runs throughout this episode is that they, they're just attacking straw men people right. might make those arguments but they're almost always the weakest possible form in fact i couldn't think of a weaker form of the moral argument from uh for god than then we need religion to be moral yeah right. so and academics who are serious about the argument they just simply don't argue like that yeah but be, before we get into the, what the argument is we can allow him to establish his, his position and he goes on to answer the question of how he gets his morality as a secular atheist in terms of um, ought and what we want. And where have you heard this before? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. That's art. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, and he gives the example that if we don't want to be hungry, we ought to eat food. Yeah. And he, his argument is that, and I'll quote, I've written down this quote here um, morality is. About well-being for you and for everybody else, and they go on in later on in the program to say that uh, if your um, discussion of morality doesn't, in some way, involve well-being, then it's not a discussion worth having. But um, but that uh, that we all desire to be happy is their point, and morality stems from this desire, and the area here is pretty rudimentary for any considered philosophical position. Yeah, he's taking a statement of fact and turning it into a statement of value, the, the fact, value, distinction, the result, right. distinction. And, and this is, you know, I've only done one semester of philosophy, but this is what everything else, I guess, would be self-taught to an extent. But this is what we learned at the very beginning. And JT is making a statement about what is the case um, and then confusing that with a moral value and so so it's like if I were to say if you if you uh, slice this man's head off, he'll die. That is a factual claim yeah right. And we, we know what it and it could even be scientific because we know that for the most part you kind of need a head to maintain your life right? just a, just a little bit. yeah to attach yeah. to the rest of your body. Preferably, too. But but if we take a different claim that you should not lop off that man's head because if you do, he will die, well, that is a mixture of factual claims, right? It presupposes facts in there, but it's also a prescription. Should we or should we not chop that man's head off? So this is a prescription that you shouldn't because if you do, he'll die. And so the, the argument being that morality, quote, morality is about well-being for you and for everybody else, unquote, it just mangles the fact, value, distinction. Facts about human well-being, like what we need to stay alive or for humankind to thrive, they don't tell us that we should give people those things that they need. To thrive or even just to survive right they only tell us that if we do give a human those things well then that person will survive right it seems to me that JT's um, just ripped a page out of Harris's playbook since this right. is precisely yeah what Harris was criticized for in his attempt at moral philosophy. And and this is it, right. This isn't even a Christian objection. It was David Hume who gave the world the fact-value distinction.
0: Saint Saint David, patron saint of uh, <laughs> secularists everywhere.
1: Yeah. So you know that that's that's essentially the the first major problem that that stood out to me.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think those are those are really good those are really good starting points and when i i mean when when i listened to it i had some of the same ones so um starting off with the with the ontological argument what i found what i found so interesting so i i i, I heard the same thing you did which was basically here's an email uh but we didn't take the time to look up Godel. so i'm just going to talk about aunts and yeah. and 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 matthew dillahunty you know for for as nice of a guy as I'm sure sure he is his answer was i mean this is he says it seems like defining god into existence and i've never been convinced of it right that's his answer that that i mean there there's literally no other uh there's no other refutation really given of the argument there's not even there's not even objections to the argument that are placed it's just it's just this this kind of argument from incredulity saying well it's never convinced me can we move on now <laughs> uh, i mean that's that's basically how he, how he handles it but he doesn't deal with uh godel's ontological argument he doesn't deal with uh, uh modal version of the ontological argument i mean he doesn't he just they just don't deal with it um and this is and i i just kind of from the the past episodes i i just have to keep reminding everyone this is supposed to be this is ostensibly this it is marketed as a show on counter apologetics, right? This is supposed to be arguments against, you know, theistic arguments, theistic proofs, arguments for, for, for religion and so forth. That the, the, it's billed as, that's how it's ticketed <laughs> that it's going to be counter apologetics. And the, the, you know, what it does so often is just, well, we don't like that. It's stupid. Now let's move on. Yeah, um, and that was basically how they handled Godel. Um, there, w- there was a call in between. There's two, a couple little betweens between we can go back to, but yeah, the the email on on morality, you hit on some really good ones on the fact value distinction. So you know, I'm not going to belabor that point. But what I found so interesting, and and I've always kind of pointed this out to people, but I've never heard it so explicit until JT Eberhard basically presented, and it's it's exactly what Sam Harris says. Uh, but it's just it's it's much more explicit on this fact and that's he basically says look we want to live in a world where x is true right we we want to we want to live in a world where murder is bad so therefore we ought not murder right the yeah. it it's it's the i mean I know sam Harris has said similar things but this is the first time where it's so explicit that it is just wish fulfillment I mean that 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 is what this type of morality. I mean it's 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 just subjective wish fulfillment. I mean there's there's no reason given why murder is bad. There's no reason given why I should give a damn about the well being of anybody else. I mean you're you're going to have sometimes they're going to say things like well it's for the betterment of society. I'm sorry that's a very thoroughly late modern conception. Society did just fine for a long time considering who you know depending on who you were if you were the top guy on the on the ladder and you could crush everybody else normally you did just fine uh, yeah. you didn't have to have concerns so this whole like a society will only function if we work cooperatively together and try to make you know everyone have a, a better well-being well, that's, that's, that's not how it functioned for a really, really, really long time. You don't actually right. have to have that. So why should I? What, what, where does the ought come from? And yeah. he basically says it's because we really, 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 really deep down want it that way.
1: Right. And, and they go on to give, I think, a couple of examples from altruism in the animal kingdom, apart right. from human beings. But but here's the thing, right? We don't call a lion killing a zebra murder. We call right. it killing. We call it instinctual. He has an instinct to feed, to, to survive, right? And he needs food to do that. And he instinctually then kills a zebra to to survive but if if you have food and i'm starving to death if i kill you for that piece of food right because you won't give me any we don't call that killing for survival this is the this is where i don't think that they quite realize the implications of their worldview i guess of their moral epistemology right
0: yeah, they haven't they haven't kicked the can all the way down the road yet.
1: No, that's right. This is the logical implication that if I were to do that to you, we couldn't call that murder, even though we do. And of course, you know, if I did do that, and they were discussing this story, I'm sure it would just be laden with uh, um, uh, moral language and yeah, oh yeah, they'd be morally indignation, indignant, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, so, oh so, yeah,
0: oh yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it, it's just a social construct, but. But damn you to hell if you're, you know, in their eyes, bigoted or, or, or whatever. I mean, whatever. I mean, we, we might look at someone and say, yeah, they're immoral, but it just doesn't make sense. I mean, why, why are they morally indignant that that person is just doing something they don't like? Right. And, and uh, it was funny because you, you mentioned how they brought up social animals and they're, they're talking about, oh, well, you know, in, in the, in the, in the chimps and the primates, we see things like compassion and fairness and equity and empathy, they completely leave out, yeah, we also see baboons if they want if they want a female, they're gonna go you know basically pummel the other baboon to death, right. take the female into their lair, and forcibly rape them right uh I mean <laughs> do we really want to say, well, we see it in the animal kingdom, therefore that's the principle we should derive from you know it, well if we're if we're just like that, I mean why why wouldn't we? Why, why is why do we take the good stuff but we say the bad stuff oh that's that's just for the animals right and I mean it, and not there's no mention, there's no there's no dividing line there's no reason
1: uh, yeah not to mention that a lot of the the so-called good stuff is is anthropomorphized yeah we're looking at it through human eyes and we're right. looking at it and filtering it through that if we see something to be uh, I guess altruistic Um. Well, it could also be just cooperational and we could be interpreting it as, as something moral about a species. I think they... I'm trying to remember now. I wish I'd written the quote down, but they go on... Uh, uh, I can't remember. One of them says... You might want to cut this bit out altogether if I can't yeah. remember correctly. One of them says that... Um, that... uh that's why we as a species don't do those things something along those lines compl- right. b- because we want to be one with our species and harmonious with our species but they they seem to forget that we also don't do those things to hire apes and animals yeah right we don't do those things uh, like you know kill them or, or just, you know, harvest their organs to be useful for us because we recognize a level of intelligence in them, yeah? Now, that right. doesn't necessarily mean that they're then moral agents. They could just be, and a lot. it seems to me, a lot of what they do is just cooperational right? It's right. the cooperational rearing of young. It's the cooperational, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That seems to be their guiding principle. That isn't necessarily uh, moral agents working to, you know, an objective, uh, I guess, in an objective capacity to do what is actually the right thing to do.
0: Right. And and we have to remember that that being, quote unquote, humane to animals is is pretty new yeah. on the scene i mean I, and, I'm, and i'm not saying we shouldn't be humane to animals yeah I, you know we uh, I, we shouldn't run out and like a kick a cat or anything but but there there's there's some validity in saying well i mean we we've only conceptualized animals as, as we we don't we don't conceive them as humans but there there's a certain point where we where the transition happened where we started viewing them as humane or something that you know we have to treat them as if we were treating uh, you know a fellow human or something like that.
1: that that's it, but that's the anthropomorphization, yeah. Yeah. right? We we see that uh, in other animals, uh, the ability to experience pain, even if they don't have that higher awareness of of knowing that they're in pain or right. knowing that they're dying, and we. Have sensibilities about that, and we don't want to offend those sensibilities, and so we, you know, start to make laws. But you that to me, though, does actually seem like, uh, I guess just a societal mores,
0: right? Well, and uh, it kind of moving down the tr- the the the, the, t- the topic, I mean, that um, I think it was Tracy who brought up um, moral dilemmas and how there's um, these studies that show yeah. in the case of. Of, of moral dilemmas uh, where, where you're not exactly sure that you act on emotion, right? And for her, that's this indicator that it's, it's after the fact reasoning that you try to justify it, that morality is emotion driven. But, but what I mean, what I find so interesting is that, I mean, I've listened to their show so often, they're, they're going to point out, look, there are people that will often act on emotion rather than reason. But does that say that reason <laughs> uh, isn't an absolute operating principle, right? Are they going to say, well, it's just a subjective illusion. It's just something that we use to help us function. Uh, you know, it, 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 it varies from culture to culture, right? It's not, it's not absolute. I mean, just because we're in a hard spot, which, which by the way, I've always thought uh, the appeal to moral dilemmas was, was weird, because the only reason a moral dilemma is a dilemma yeah. <laughs> is is because you're stuck between what you perceive as two objectively good or bad things yeah. and you don't have the capacity to actualize both of them. Yeah. Right? I mean I mean it's only a dilemma if you have an actual moral obligation. Otherwise there's no dilemma, you can pick whichever one you want.
1: Yeah. You
0: can act on emotion and it's fine, right? So what I what I found so funny about Tracy's statement is I mean if she's right then there's nothing wrong with acting on emotion. I, I'm acting based right. on what I want, <laughs> right? And, and, and I and I'm picking. There's no dilemma. That's I, I just, might feel I might feel emotional angst uh, about it, but there's no actual dilemma.
1: Yeah, and and that's I guess you know that's just another indication that um, that they they haven't really considered the the long-term implications or the you know really what happens down the line logically uh, of their worldview of of what they're espousing right there and then on the show right right one thing that uh while we're uh speaking about tracy harris's um discussion points one thing that she brought up i wanted to briefly touch on was uh near-death experiences and and uh she goes on to say um I quote her as saying, dying brains, why would why, you trust why, them? Yeah, why would you trust a yeah. dying brain? Yeah. And she goes on to point out that, that, uh, um, She means they're deprived of oxygen and and so forth. But yeah, that's the point, yeah? Now, I'm not necessarily a fan of near-death experiences. In fact, I think they're they're mostly an aside to the argument for an afterlife. But you still have to at least understand the proponent's argument instead of reducing it to a slogan, caricaturing it, yeah? The point is that if our hearts have stopped and our brains cease to function... People who were brought back to life from this point, they report some sort of mental activity. And and there are other atheists who think that, you know, that um, the uh, um, material things, you know, normal baryonic matter, don't necessarily bring with them the mental Um such as Thomas Nagel. But I think one of the biggest issues with the claims of near-death experiences is determining when they actually experience that mental activity. How can you, in a, in a scientific experiment, control for that when being unconscious makes you practically oblivious to time? That's right. what you know, part of being unconscious means. <laughs> but but the point is, is that you may find near-death experience claims dubious, right? And I might join you in that argument, or if not dubious, ultimately unknowable, but you still cannot reduce the issue to a caricature. And, and that seems to me what Harris has done here. Um Of course, I went to the trouble now of just explaining it, I guess, for responsibility. <laughs> uh, why near-death experiences are are a little dubious at least so
0: yeah and i mean i i would probably be just as skeptical of of near-death experiences as as tracy would be i mean i'm not i i've never made a near-death experience argument for afterlife i mean i don't i i I don't i mean if if they're i mean basically i just look at them i i kind of at the point of i i don't think we could ever know if they're true Mm. Uh, their their private experiences that people have, yeah. Um, which which I found so interesting because J T when when he responds, he basically says, "Look, um, you get similar experiences on mushrooms or on LSD acid trips, and and there's no way to know because no one else observed it." Well, the problem is is that mental states are always private. There, yeah. No one's ever, no one has ever observed my mental state. What they've observed is me trying to express it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, poorly or adequately or, or whatever. Uh, but no one's ever. I, they're entirely private to myself. Uh, something like pain is entirely private to myself. You can see features that might show that I'm in pain, but but the experience itself is private. The fact that no one has ever, no one, no one's observed someone else's private experience. Is isn't that weird? It's not it's not an argument against something, um, and and what I've always thought what I've always thought really strange about this type of, this type of rejection because it's not, this is where this is where I think we move from basically agnosticism to atheism. It's it's not a we don't know. It's you know because I'm kind of in the position of agnost. I don't know. Uh, people make these claims. I don't think we'll ever have a way of knowing mm-hmm. uh what what actually happened. Uh I don't know if we'll know it's a dying brain or not a dying brain. But you have you have then Tracy and JT going on the on the counteroffensive and saying no, uh we have good reason to think that they're false. It's yeah. not just we don't know. It's we have good reasons to think they're false. And so the question is are those good reasons to think that they're false?
1: Right, Uh, and that just brings us back to, well, if they're experiencing that mental activity, you have to, to know that it's false, you would then have to be able to know exactly what time they were experiencing that mental activity, right? and whether or not that lined up with, you know, their heart failure and and eventually uh, their... Uh, when their brain ceases to function, and uh, really shortly after that, you would have to be able to line those up to be able to say, "Oh, okay, well, the mental activity happened well before that, and from you know the point on onwards, uh, where their right. heart stopped working, there was no mental activity." If you can't say that, you cannot say whether or not it's false. You are forced into, you know, like you said, a sort of agnosticism, agnosticism from from this perspective.
0: Yeah, and 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 part of it, and this is this is where I where I think the the philosophy comes back in. Part of it is just my my rejection of reductionism. Uh, I mean, so 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 JT and Tracy both kind of make statements around, along the lines of, well, you know, we can manufacture similar experiences. Well, we can manufacture in the brain by stimulating certain areas. We can manufacture similar experiences to hunger. Yeah. But does that mean that hunger doesn't exist? It's it's just, you know, it's it's just this illusory, right? right? We we can we can stimulate, and so that you have you have different perceptions of seeing different light in your different you know ranges of view. Does that mean you've never seen a, an actual light before, mm-hmm. right? Just because you can stimulate in the brain something analogous, it, it, you can't go from because X is similar to Y, therefore Y is false. Mm. Right. it's it's just it's just an entirely reductionistic view it doesn't it doesn't it's not an
1: argument right it's certainly not a scientific one which is what they seem to be uh, really keen on giving is a scientific explanation but again i think I think uh, as an actual scientist, I'm not sure what their jobs are. (laughs) I think that for me, my biggest problem, yeah, would be being able to prove that that mental activity happened before or after the brain ceases to function. If you can't do that, then you simply cannot say that it is or isn't false. You have to remain uh, an agnostic. You have to remain in the dark about it until you get that, that data, and as far as I'm aware, I haven't researched you know every single uh, uh, article I, I could find, but as far as I'm aware, that has never been uh, calculated before. I mean, right, like, and as we were saying, how do you figure out somebody's mental activity uh, when they're experiencing, experiencing it there and then as their heart begins to fail?
0: Yeah, especially I mean it's not like we're manufacturing near death experiences. Right? I mean you kind of you kind of do these things on the fly. You, it, it's really hard to set up a scientific experiment <laughs> right. for a near death experience because you don't know when it's I mean you don't know when it's going to happen. You're not you're not, you know, drowning people intentionally. Uh, to try to get them to have a near-death experience. Um, how about we move on to the next the next email? We kind of skipped ahead to morality. There was the one in between uh, the tired canard about Hitler and Stalin oh, being
1: Darwinists. Can, can I can I say something about this first? <laughs> Do you mind? Please, please. Uh, yeah, this was an email from John, I believe, yeah? N- yeah. Now, this group, I mean, as even though we did kind of jump ahead a bit there, we've, they've already shown themselves to be irresponsible philosophers. And the same is true for their capacity to work as historians. Yeah, The oh yeah. facts are obvious. It's almost
0: worse. It's almost oh, worse as yeah. historians.
1: Because, because, yeah, because these facts are so much more understandable. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, and to the unbiased historian, the facts are obvious that – Hitler used a distorted view of the predominant Darwinian theory at the time, and that included a supposed survival of the fittest. Now, atheists, they may not like the fact that Hitler commandeered Darwin's theory, imposing it on a a social and political level, but the facts are, he did. And we would join them in their disapproval of that, but... Um, as an example of what we're talking about, in a 1937 propaganda film titled Aless Leben ist Kampf, which means uh, all life is struggle, there's a scene of two bugs fighting in a lab, Yeah. And yeah. the point that the narrator was making was that the fittest of these two will survive. Yeah, the weak will die, and and in his debate with uh, David Robertson on Unbelievable, right, Dillahunty points out, as he does here and again in the Thinking Atheist program, he he loves this point that the Germans carried with them on their armor the phrase Gott mit uns," meaning "God is with us." Yeah, right. In the debate, right, Dillahunty he says, "You do know that Hitler espoused Christianity both publicly and privately." And he gives examples of where Hitler gave a public speech, stating, um, and I got the quote here. Uh, if I can find it, uh, Hitler's in Hitler's public speech. It says, "Secular schools can never be tolerated because such schools have no religious instruction, and a general moral instruction without a religious foundation is built on air." Consequently. All character training and religion must be derived from faith. Right? This is this is uh, Hitler's public speech. Yeah? yeah. Um. Now, a responsible historian knows that any statement from antiquity must be sensitive to the socio-political and historical context in which it's being said, and that includes especially. The immediate context, not just the surrounding context, yeah? And as Robertson points out to Dillahunty, that Hitler said this in 1933, before his final election, where he would eventually be uh, elected chancellor, to the Catholic Teachers Union, before he had his concordat, Right. Obviously, he would be speaking glowingly of Catholicism if he wanted their votes. Now, of course, anyone treating history responsibly would not only take into account Hitler's audience and the political and immediate context um, that it's occurring in, but, but also what precedes it, um, but also what would follow it, yeah? And of course, what would follow it, well, that that's very clear. None of the folks on the Thinking atheist seem to be able to treat history responsibly, and so you would never know if you just listened to their program, right? But in the years following uh, Hitler's consolidation of power, schools were being used by the Nazis in campaigns against the churches. That's fact. Hitler youth were prohibited from belonging to a religious organization. That's fact and by the time hitler would invade poland on the 1st of september in 1939 all clergymen were removed from schools now Tyler you know this about me that I'm world war 2 amateur world war 2 buff i collect all kinds of things that i can get my hands on from uh, world war 2 yeah. and one of the things that i happened to know about the, the german empire or, or the the reich at this time was that the motto god with us or god is with us right was the motto of the whole german army and it was on their armor by the unification of the german empire in 1871 this is more than 18 years before hitler was even born Okay right. now and you won't find historians like Kershaw or Bullock or Fest or Bourbon or Rees al these are you know actual historians of World War two and Nazi Germany. You won't find them making these same silly sophomoric uh, arguments um to show that that Hitler was a Christian or even that Hitler was an atheist, right, but they point out things like the writings of Goebbels, who in forty one wrote that Hitler hates christianity because it has crippled everything that is noble about humanity right and these historians they point out that while hitler did not publicly advocate for state atheism he did seek to diminish the influence of the church and and i get you know i i guess that the point is i you know when i sit back and i look at the thinking atheists so far and and what i've heard about uh, um Hitler and Hitler's religious views. you would walk away one hundred percent certain that they said Hitler was a christian right right and right but I realized very quickly that these are not, and people need to to consider this, these are not serious considerations of Hitler's religious views, and they're not grounded in responsible historiography. They're uninformed opinions. Uh, and what, I guess, what is getting me so excited about that right now is that it's really unfortunate, because th- these uninformed opinions, they're likely to go wholly unchecked by most, if not all, of their listeners' atheist listeners right you know but seeming to not know any of this that that doesn't stop them from pointing out air quotes facts right (laughs) that that doesn't stop them jt says that uh, and um bringing up hitler's ties to darwinian theory at the time uh because he wants to argue that morality requires their specific religion actually that's what he says i've got the quote here that um that uh, that's why Christians bring up um, Hitler's ties to Darwinian theory, yeah. So right. so that they can argue that morality requires their specific religion. But we we already went through this earlier uh, before, yeah. It, it's not the argument isn't that m- morality requires uh, um, Christianity or Islam, right? It, it's that. And what JT doesn't seem to understand is that the objection is, or or if he does, right, he's talking again to the weakest form of, of, of the argument. The point is not that morality requires our our particular brand of theism, but it's that if you want to say something is objectively wrong and and look at them try to distance themselves from Hitler and and Nazi Germany, right, it's just so – I mean, they'll approach Hitler and what happened in Nazi Germany with such – indignation it becomes it becomes actually just uh, bewilderingly ironic but if you want to say that something is objectively wrong and since nazi germany came up if you want to be able to say that what hitler and the nazis did was objectively evil that it is a fact that what they did was wrong you must be able to provide a grounds for your objectivity. And theists make the meta-ethical claim that moral values and duties are rooted in God. That's where we try to ground moral objectivity, not in specifically Christianity or specifically in, although I, I think that you could, um, perhaps not so much um, Islam or, say, Hinduism or something like that, not specifically in that but in in generally just theistically right despite your flavor or yeah despite your flavor of theism right. the argument is that that god's nature reflects morally um, moral values and duties—the moral values and facts that we uh, have a grounding for—comes from God's nature, and that's our, uh, um, that's where our ability to ground a moral objectivity comes from. Of course, if you're trying to ground it in something natural or materialistic, it, it isn't. It, it's just wholly subjective, and so you cannot say that Hitler did something objectively wrong. You could say he did something that you didn't prefer or something that you would not do to someone else, sure, but that's only you you giving your psychology and and your subjective opinion. There isn't anything um, obligatory about uh, um, not doing something that Hitler done, right? Or did. Done. Look at me. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, it's just that that whole series was just so bizarre. I mean, uh, I mean, at one at one point, I want to say, well, I kind of know where it's coming from because we've all seen, the, you know, the Christian who try who tries to say, you know, atheists. If you're an atheist, you're gonna be you're gonna be like Hitler or you're gonna be like Stalin, right? Yeah. I mean, th- that that argument is made, but again, that that's just dealing. That's them dealing with the lowest common denominator. Then if that's who they're if that's who they're engaging with, I mean, I, I've always made the point, kind of on both sides, saying, "Look, Hitler, if anything, was kind of like a proto-not, or well, yeah, like a gnostic almost. Uh, I mean, his his view was was very pagan in his view. It, it wasn't Christian. I don't think he was an atheist. Uh, he was kind of a mismatch of whatever he wanted to fit his ideology. He was nihilistic sometimes. He was paganistic other times. He drew on evolution, where the evolutionary theory, where it fit his purposes." And we should remember that evolutionary theory, the the social application of it, right? Hitler wasn't really doing anything weird, yeah. Right? I mean, the the, the eugenics program that was running full steam in the United States before Hitler even got into power. Uh, what was something that we would, we would consider horrified and it only shut down after, uh, we kind of, we, we found out what was happening in the eugenics programs in, in the concentration camps. That's really what just dried up the, you know, dried up the funding was the U S public got appalled by what they were seeing in, in Nazi Germany, saw the close connection between the American eugenics and cut funding. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's close to what happened. So but but that they, like you were saying that that's not the argument that's not why Hitler well at least for most most uh, Christian philosophers who, who would ever even bring up this type of topic um, they're using it usually as an analogy not as an argument in of itself. Um, what about the, the Stalin constructed something like religion? Stalin you know Stalin didn't count as an atheist by the way because you know he, he was he was groomed in seminary. Right. And
1: what he built was akin to uh, religious akin to,
0: which I always thought was funny. Because if going to a seminary or or having a religious background means you can't be considered a true quote, you know, a true atheist for the rest of your life, most of these new atheists. Yeah, I, I mean, not. how many of them? How many of them were? Were? It's like almost a point of pride how much of a pastor, how much of a true Christian they really were mm. before they deconverted. Right, right. But with yeah. Stalin, because he went to seminary, he he has that religious undercurrent under everything he does.
1: Yeah, there's no double standard there.
0: Yeah. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. And, and of course, it's it's like a religion because because why? It's a top down structure.
1: Right. And but, the, the, you know, the ironic thing is is that <laughs> if we want an example of what state atheism would look like, we have it in history. We okay. have examples yeah. of what state atheism would look like. Yeah. And it's and, not pretty.
0: And I wouldn't I wouldn't even look at, at, at Stalin's Russia. I would for, for a really yeah. good example of a, of a of a of a kind of a a secular, atheistically driven culture, right? There's I I would make a, a big distinction between a post Christian culture and an atheistic culture. Right. I mean, a post-Christian culture is just basically one where they've lost the fire in their faith, but it basically hold it's like they have a Christian hangover throughout the entire thing. State atheism, where where it's grounded on secularism, it's grounded on naturalism and and atheism. I mean, I would look at something like Hawks Albania. Right. I mean, it's not as bad as stalin's russia but i still wouldn't want to live there
1: yeah it's still not pretty right yeah
0: it it's 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 not it's not a pretty sight to live in, in another culture and i always just want to ask these people look what 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 society would you rather live in would you rather live in a, a modern christianized or post-christianized culture or would you rather live in in any any of the atheistic regimes any of them which one would you rather live under and I can almost guarantee they, they'd always want to live in one that was that was birthed in a Christian context. Yeah. Every single uh, I,
1: time. I was just so scandalized by the the irresponsible historiography I saw yeah. being conducted. I just I can't believe that that their their claim. I mean, they it what does it say for their claims to being rational and and uh, well-grounded in fact and science. What does it say to that if they can't even responsibly speak about Hitler's religious views? It's...
0: Well, I think it's I think a lot of it is fed by by generalizations. I mean, just a ton of generalizations. I, I mean, they seem to be working on that false assumption. So when they're talking about, what, well, what was the motto of the German army, right? Mm. God is with us. Like you pointed out, that, that that's been the motto for... However, it's, yeah, from yes. before Hitler was was even born, right? But but there's, they're almost working on that unstated assumption, and it's the impression that I got listening to it that they thought the German army was the Nazis.
1: Yeah, yeah
0: and the, the, that's just that's just completely f- shameless plug by the way for one of my favorite podcasts uh Dan Carlin if you're if you ever listen to this which i doubt you will your your show hardcore history is fantastic everyone <laughs> is should listen excellent. to it uh yeah, he, Tyler he, put he, me onto it 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 is a fantastic it's a fantastic podcast uh yeah. it, but
1: it's, it's i'll i wanted always wanted to say this it is more it it it, it is it's probably the most uh, intricate and interesting storytelling I've heard in a very long time.
0: Oh yeah, it is. It is just fantastic. I mean, it, it, fantastic is not even the word for that podcast. Yeah. By the way, uh, shameless plug of one of my favorite ones. You shall, listen to it. He hasn't gotten to World War Two yet, but he's going through World War One, and and it's it's just so interesting to go through and you see how often the army and the and the powers were not the same groups, right? right and and it'd be it'd be akin to saying uh, because because George W. Bush took us into war in Iraq that the entire army was the GOP yeah or they were GOP supporters or something yeah. I mean that it would be that type of argument to to say that under under Hitler and the Nazis that the entire army were Nazis or were Nazi sympathizers or were Nazi supporters. They they were German. They they, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were they were
1: carrying out orders.
0: From the Ger- from from German politi- politics and, and, and governance at the time. They were they were doing what they thought they were defending their home and and they you know, their stories were there a lot of times you had they they stopped fighting, you know, yeah. you had surrendering because they, they realized, especially towards the end of the war, uh that, that it, it you know, they they didn't want to keep defending Hitler.
1: Yeah, towards uh, towards the end there, especially in the last couple of months, and especially surrounding the Battle of Berlin, uh, yeah, so many of Hitler, Hitler's orders didn't go fulfilled. Some of them weren't even transmitted, and some that were, were disregarded. Right. Um, there's no, yeah, there, there's definitely, uh, um, I guess when the war started in '39, then, I guess that you have about six years before they got fed up with it and realized that this isn't, you know, going right. anywhere. This but but we have detriment.
0: to we have to remember, I mean, the the German army what they they weren't they weren't defending concentration camps.
1: No, that's right. I mean uh,
0: that that's not it's not like it's not like the Nazis had god is on our side to defend the Nazi camps and that yeah. makes that makes Hitler a Christian.
1: Yeah. Right,
0: it, just, just conflating that away, is just bizarre.
1: If you walked away just listening to uh, the what the thinking atheist episode, you might get that impression. Oh, that that I think that's exactly the impression yeah. um, that that you would get
0: from them is is you know if if we really if we really had to lay down bets, right? They're not going to come out and flat out say Hitler is a Christian, but I think they they veer on the side of look if if we had to make a bet, we're going to bet that he's that he was a Christian of some sort. Because right. because he was raised Catholic,
1: right? Of so. course, and that's and that's without <laughs> reference to any of the actual experts. These are people who are historians of World War Two. This is their career, yeah. Kershaw, right. Bullock, um, Rees. I mentioned Bourbon before. These are people who actually study the the period. But why make any reference to to them? This is uh, history. You know what happened in the past is just a Uh, is uh, metaphysical and according to tracy harris metaphysical has no meaning or if you think it has meaning then don't contact her right that's what that's what she has on her facebook page she (laughs) says if you think that metaphysical means anything coherent don't add me as a friend
0: right which (laughs) which Which, ironically, is a meta-statement about definitions of metaphysics. That's so funny. They were talking
1: a little bit later on in the program that, you know, you should see if the knife cuts both ways, right? Yeah. Uh, well, this would be a prime example of where to start, guys.
0: Yeah. Um, so, I think uh, I, I want to move into the to the next caller uh well I think it was later on in the same call that talked about morality and he, and he's talking about and he's talking about flat earthers. Yes. Right? And he says, you know, it's it's hard to get them which which by the way I I know that flat earthers get a bad rap.
1: <laughs> uh I can't imagine uh, why.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh to be completely honest, I mean to, I've literally ne- I, they they get brought up so much. I've never talked to a flat earther. I've never met no, one. I haven't. I'm sure I'm sure they exist. I, I look, sure that, I've
1: seen one website on flat Earth theory. I obviously were, was looking was at it, it out of but was
0: it real or was it a joke?
1: No, it was real. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. at least I had the impression it was real. But sometimes that's the point of satire. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah I mean, sometimes that's the, that's the whole point. So, so, so he goes. So he goes. Okay. So the same thing. Then they're, they're talking about you. You can't get them uh, to realize their their fallacy, and you have to first get them to to. to to, to realize the fallacy um, uh, before you can get them to admit. So this is, uh, and, and I keep, I bring this up and, and I, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a rant here for a second, because I, I, I've asked this question. I know you've seen me ask this question. People on the, on the page have seen me ask the question. I've asked it probably 50 or 60 times now across the, the course of, uh, of, of, several, of several different groups and threads over the years. I've literally never gotten a, a single coherent answer to the question. The question is, it, it seems to me that naturalism, philosophical naturalism, if you actually hold it kind of in in a, in, a, in Hume's way, right? Because they always they always talk about whether they know that they're being supported by Hume or not. Uh, Hume has kind of ingrained himself into uh, modern air quote skepticism, mm-hmm. even uh, though
1: and and especially even though. Hume at the time, they hadn't developed probability calculus, but even right. still,
0: right. Even though, even though Hume, even for Humean scholars, have massive problems with with Hume. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hume's abject failure, right? By by one of the top Hume scholars. So that that you know just uh, the, is l- that
1: by uh, uh, now now I'm uh, John Ehrman.
0: Yeah. 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 Ehrman. Yeah. No, I always think Ehrman. Ehrman. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. So. Okay, so I asked this question because so, I think naturalism is itself unfalsifiable, right? And on naturalism, you shouldn't believe things that are unfalsifiable, right? You, you should only believe things if they're, if they're scientifically verifiable. And to be scientifically verifiable, you have to be able to know what conditions would falsify it, right? And so I've always asked them, what, what would undermine your naturalism, right? What, what would cause you to believe that naturalism is false and that theism is true? right because for it, it, i mean anything name an event that you couldn't say it's a delusion or a hallucination it's aliens uh we we you know we're in the matrix or even the 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 favored you know feigned humility i don't know is the most humble position but hopefully, science will figure it out someday. And since a natural explanation is always more pl- probable and plausible than a sky, than a sky daddy fairy pixie flying spaghetti monster god of the gaps to explain it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? There, there's no answer. So whatever answer you give, so if you if you want to say God could rearrange the sky, the stars in the sky to spell out Yahweh created creation. Why would you conclude that God is the answer rather than I don't know, or I'm deluded, or mm-hmm. I'm hallucinating, any variety of naturalistic answers, or a whole host of variety of naturalistic answers, if you hold that naturalism is true?
1: Yeah, is this this is, this is also part of um, uh, Plantinga's? Um objection to naturalism right right he has the evolutionary yeah if evolution is
0: true i mean we we, we've evolved senses that aren't the the purpose isn't truth seeking Yeah. right it's survival so we don't know that maybe broad deception is more advantageous for survival and so our brains deceive us to help us survive we don't know right so so you have you have things like that going on so matt jumps in when he's talking to his caller and he says and he says look you have to move away from the specifics when you're dealing with these flat people. And you have to you have to talk about standards of evidence and burden of proof and if it's unfalsifiable then you cannot be justified in believing it. Yeah. Right? I I think that's what he's that's when he says that faith can justify anything. Faith can justify anything, right? Yeah. So so my question is, well what is your naturalism then? Is is your naturalism that type of faith which I would I would argue what it means by faith, but, but is, is, is your naturalism falsifiable? Can you falsify it? Because it seems like on naturalism, especially in the type of rhetoric where, where I don't know is preferred rather than appealing to a sky daddy, right? Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the rhetoric used where I don't know is going to be preferred. It's going to be the most humble, humble position, Naturalism is always insulated from falsifiability. It can never be falsified because I don't know will always be de facto more probable and plausible to the than naturalist God, yeah. than God did it. Yeah. Right? Because you're always gonna have God did it. And 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 their arguments and their rhetoric is, is set up in such a way. So imagine that they're that to try to answer the question, they're trying to say, well, no, you know, if if God aligned the stars in the sky, then it'd be clear that that God did it. Yeah, well but, any other naturalist by any of their arguments can I mean you could you could pick a potpourri of answers that, that would come from that yeah, because yeah. they could say, Well well then what caused God? Yeah. Right? Because that could that yeah. can be an objection. If you can't explain God, then God can't be an explanation. Well, how did God do it? Because if you don't have a mechanism for how God rearranged the stars, then God is not a valid answer for it. So you have to say, I don't know. Right. Right? You have you have all of these normal rhetorical devices used in the defense of naturalism that make naturalism insulated from falsification, which by its own standard, then, by, by Matt's words, if it's unfalsifiable, then you can't be justified in believing it. And yeah. so you should abandon it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: That type of thing just drives me up the wall.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciate his quote that faith can justify anything. Oh, um, of course, our, uh, our good friend, uh, Doc Bog. Yes, I mentioned too, and... Uh, oh yeah, it, Peter Burgosian. Yeah, it's, a, it's around the same uh, time that that Matt says that he, faith can justify anything, but in that case, well then, faith can justify the non-existence of God too, if that's a part of anything. Right. <laughs> that has to be true. Yeah, right. you, you, you can't make sweeping statements like that and, and not expect that to come back and bite you in the backside. yeah
0: Right, and it, and it's also, I mean, just the statement itself is is unfalsifiable. So, if it's if you shouldn't believe something, if you can't be justified in believing something that's unfalsifiable, yeah. is that statement falsifiable? Right. Right. How do you know that that's true? Yeah. What uh, what, what empirical evidence? How 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 would you falsify it? You can't. Right. Yeah. So by him, Sorry, I God. should. It's not justified. I should reject it.
1: Yeah. yeah. But yeah, by by its own definition. One now, just quickly. Uh, I had a chance to look up that paper I was talking about by uh, Christoph Benzmueller and Bruno Paleo. I won't attempt to pronounce his middle name, but uh, this is the Formulization, Mechanization, and Automation of Godel's Proof for God's Existence, right? Yeah. Um, that is the paper that I was referring to earlier. And the other thing that I just wanted to say is that, look, I don't, you know, we probably could have started off with this, but I don't want this to seem like, um, I guess, it just a general um, atheist bashing episode, because oh, yeah, no. it isn't, right? I, I could, I, I could take the likes of. Roos and nagel and oppie and kai nielsen um slightly lesser extent not lesser in terms of of intellect but just in terms of their the extent of their research and work in philosophy piliucci and law and i could listen to their stuff all day in fact i have and i do right um their stuff is is a proper attempt at justifying their naturalism right and and it's not just a you know I mean, I, and I'm going to say that you know people like Harris, Tracy Harris, and Matt Hunty they have had the same amount of time, but Bruce and Nagel and and the likes of them uh, have have had their positions now considered for decades, multiple decades. We're talking forty-five plus years for some of them. Okay, these are people who have an approach to atheism or agnosticism. That I find, I find actually challenging to a theist's worldview, right? Right. But there are also people um, who I think, and I would love to see other atheists, particularly those who are attracted to, um, Dillahunti's work and and Tracy Harris and the Thinking atheists. I'm, I'm not sure who the the host is. Is is that?
0: Yeah, the the Thinking Atheist. Um... Uh, his uh seth i think is his seth. name yeah okay
1: yeah people who are attracted to those kind i would love for them to switch over to the likes of of kai nielsen and to massimo pigliucci and to thomas Nagel, graham Oppie, one of the most important philosophers in in ontology and metaphysics that there is right and they, these are all atheists and, and agnostics, right? These are not theists by any stretch of the imagination, but these are people who deserve your attention. Unfortunately, it doesn't sit, you know, you'll go to, to a lecture by and it has 4,000 views on, on YouTube, but you'll go to a talk that Matt Dillahunty did and it's got 50,000, 70,000 views. And, you know, you, you do have to wonder at the impact the difference in impact these these people are having on right. uh their their atheist counterparts and and you have to wonder whether or not that's a reflection um most you know most of the atheists that we meet they're not typically considered uh they're not typically bringing to us uh well considered positions they're normally throwing out uh, uh pretty sop- sloppily the problem of evil or um, who who created God? If God created everything, or right. you know these really sophomoric, rudimentary uh, questions that if they hadn't have been dealt with by now, I think you would be justified in 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 uh, wondering why everyone isn't an atheist already. <laughs> why are there any Christians at all if right. these kinds of questions didn't have. Um, uh, uh, proper rebuttals or if they hadn't been dealt with you know properly it'd be nice to see um i guess atheists rise above the the popularism um that i find and that i feel um dogged me during my time as an atheist um and and probably set me back until i began to to get onto uh those that now i think are worthy of much more attention and i think it's not even a close call it's not even yeah. an argument right yeah. these are people who whose profession whose life is to do atheism they write about it they lecture on it they teach it they uh, they teach philosophy and naturalism and and uh, metaphys- uh metaphysical naturalism and so on right that's that's what their job is it's their profession yeah why is it that that, that people prefer the popularism the popular level atheism especially if you consider that your position uh prizes above all else things like logic and sound rationale and evidence and, and re, uh, you know proper reasoning i mean it's, it that that also becomes bewilderingly unbelievable how that how the state or current state of affair came to be yeah, so, yeah it's, i don't it's want a i don't want like. this i don't want this to seem like you know uh, just our personal dislike for for this particular podcast it's not just that it's that there are atheists out there that are worth your attention they're worth a christian's attention you know let alone another atheist for now <laughs> they're worth the attention of christians if they're worth the attention of christians how much more so of other atheists but people don't call into to this show saying oh yeah i listened uh uh to to Michael Bruce and I'm really convinced, you know, that agnosticism now is is the most rational position. Or, you know, I'm I really considered Thomas Nagel and I'm certain now that uh, than I ever have been more certain that atheism is the correct position no they ha- they don't do that instead they call in and say oh yeah I've been listening to the atheist experience for a year now and I'm converted <laughs> yeah right and i or I just read uh, Peter Boghossian's um, manuals for creating atheists and I think he's hundred percent right so now I'm an atheist that's what they're calling in saying that's exactly right. what happened in this episode
0: yeah and and yeah and not to not to shamelessly shamelessly plug uh, one of my previous episodes, but um, I did an episode called uh, "Should uh, Atheists Define Atheism as a Lack of Belief?" and yeah. and basically in it I I argued and and yeah, thank you uh, I argued I argued look it, it it's not I'm not trying to say that atheism is false because you define it as a lack of belief I'm saying if you want a really a, a much more robust version of atheism you should stop defining it as a lack of belief I and I and I preface by saying look i kind of you know i'm kind of working against myself if you want to keep defining it as a lack of belief yeah. p- please by all means it makes my life so much easier it yeah. makes it makes it makes that position so much more trivial yeah. uh it, you know I, and i'm and, and, and i got a lot of blowback and, and part of it is you know they don't want to be told by an atheist or by a theist well what the atheism. interesting
1: thing is is that if you're trying to be and remember when you released that episode I'm pretty sure I was still an atheist when you listen to to that episode and and this is relevant because they brought up in this episode you know uh um defining atheism and and uh, the first thing I thought of was that you know no I I I don't lack a belief of an elephant in this room that I'm in right now I positively believe there is no elephant in this room right now. Yeah. Right. right. Because if there was, I would know. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I believe that there isn't an elephant here. Um, but the interesting thing about that podcast, when I first listened to it, your, your episode, um, is that it doesn't seem to me that you're approaching this as a Christian. You're approaching this as a philosopher. That's right. what it seemed to me, and un- unfortunately, you know, p- people will just take it as a biased Christian. But the funny thing is, is that you're actually making atheism stronger if you take <laughs> your approach to defining atheism. It's actually much more trickier to uh, to deal with than just saying it's a lack of belief. Right? Oh, it would be it would be so much harder to deal to deal with. It, yeah. it would be it'd be so much harder. It'd be
0: it'd be such a stronger challenge and and i only i only bring it up not to not to go into the the topic of what you know how you should define atheism uh, but but you know kind of echoing what you were saying this you know we're not trying to just say atheism bad you know yeah. these all atheists are stupid you right. all i mean that would be to, to make the same error of saying uh you know they all had you know god with us on their belt so hitler yeah. must have been i mean yeah. it's that same type of argument the the whole point is is look there there are and, and I have similar, I have these, these some of these similar shows about, uh, you know, some of my, my Christian counterparts, right. who I look at, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, just stop talking, just stop yeah. talking in public. You're, you are like I doing do such less. a disservice to everyone else who who does the same claim. And I and I and I think we're just saying to the atheists, look, like if, if you're gonna be an atheist and you're gonna be public and you're gonna prize logic and reason, stop looking to these type of uh, thinking atheists, Matt Matt Delante, Tracy Harris's. Right, you have so much more robust. Oh yeah rational educated nuanced philosophers and thinkers and writers go read those people go listen to those people they do lectures go listen to them yeah right but it but it's harder it's 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 more work it's more intellectual work which is just the sheer irony of it that you have this demographic saying we are the thinkers we are the brights yeah but we're, we're going to go to this. We're, we're going go to this pop ones. level, right? Yeah, we, we're the rational ones. Yeah,
1: that's our bias. If we have any biases, it's towards logic, sound rationale, and and uh, reason. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: so basically, this episode is: Hey, you you say you're the you say you're the reasonable ones. You say the rational ones,
1: prove but you did not even bother to to check the facts about his <laughs> right. uh, Hitler's uh, religious beliefs. Oh yeah. You're oh yeah. Just and repeating I... probably whatever you've heard at at. Uh, um, other atheist podcasts
0: oh yeah and and i got i mean i got i got horrible reviews i mean i got great reviews from some people atheists and christian and and anything in between on on the past couple shows on counter Projects. but i had those people that it was like it was like i kicked them in the nuts <laughs> right it, it, it was like i slapped their mom or something because yeah. i i because i as a theist dared to chat dared, dared to speak bad about you know matt dillahunty Right, or challenge or, or anything anything I could have said just came out it, it was it was just it was just inflammatory. I didn't say anything of merit whatsoever. there was no critiques. I was just angry and and, and it's like, well, you know, then I don't think you were listening to the content of the show then
1: yeah, I, so look, you know in those previous episodes, <laughs> forgive me for saying this, but I was give, a little snarky. you were pretty snarky <laughs> <laughs> i I admit. <laughs> I was listening to it and I was like, no, stop calling him uh, Matt. Maddie,
0: Maddie, D. Maddie,
1: that's it, Maddie D. Uh, stop calling him that. You're you're not going to get people to listen to you. They're going to stop at that.
0: <laughs> yeah, but there but there comes a certain point where where you know I I'm not I'm not calling him Matty D. Because because I, I, I'm not trying to insult him. It, it's it, it really and it, and it did come across. I was being a little snarky, but it but it really did come across. Like I, I, I have a I have a friend. I, I won't say his actual name, but let's say his name is Matt. It's not, but let's say I would I I would have that kind of same conversation. And be like, Maddie, Maddie, listen, like just just stop what you're saying and listen, like let li- just listen to yourself. It was it's more of that type of tone that I was going for. So if if I offended people, I apologize. I wasn't trying to be insulting, but I was I I, I was being a little snarky and 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 doing like I would with a friend and saying, look, Maddie, like. Stop all in the, your tracks. Like, do you know where you're going with this?
1: All they need to know is that you brought me on in this episode to straighten you out. And I think I'm <laughs> basically, yeah, it's yeah, <laughs> that's what, that's what
0: you're, that's your whole, we, we did this entire thing just for this last two minutes. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was just going to ask you if there's anything else on this, on this show that you had, you want to bring up before we wrap up? Great
1: minds. That's what I was going to say to you. <laughs> Great um, minds um, like. like I'm done I I am still really scandalized by what I heard uh, regarding Hitler's religious beliefs yeah um, yeah that's just that's just something that that I was itching to say something about so yeah. I made probably a few more dot points than I wanted but <laughs>
0: <laughs> a few few more capitalized yeah I mean from from here where we're kind of cutting off of the episode we really only did about the first thirty thirty forty minutes of it they start going into you know, basically methodology of counter apologetics counter apologetics worth it and all that kind of stuff which uh, that's more of an in-house discussion for them so it just kind of stay out of that one um but we we, we wanted to talk about the, those first parts well thanks for coming on um this episode and we are going to be posting this not only on the Freed thinker but we are going to be posting it uh probably on on uh, our joint project fight club as well um so that'll be up uh, probably much, much later because we're going to do a little backlog for it, but um, that'll be up on that on, on Fight Club most likely as well.
1: That sounds great.
0: All right. Well, thanks thanks so much for, for joining me again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you. It's always a pleasure talking with
0: you. And thank you all for joining us here on the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, you can find more information on my website at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Email me at freethinkerpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Or you can visit the group page on Facebook. Good night, everybody.